Welcome to the What Matters Today podcast from the Graduate Institute. I'm Dan Graham, Head of Communications at the Graduate Institute. In this podcast series, we ask members of our faculty to comment on key global issues. This episode of our What Matters Today series focuses on the Trump administration's decision to halt funding to the World Health Organization. My guest for this episode is Dr. Suri Moon. Dr. Moon is the co-director of the Graduate Institute's Global Health Center and is a visiting lecturer in interdisciplinary programs. Prior to joining the Graduate Institute in 2016, she was a lecturer on global health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. She was also the study director of the Harvard LSHTM Independent Panel on the Global Response to Ebola. In this episode, Dr. Moon shares her thoughts not only on the WHO funding situation, but also on how the WHO has been handling the coronavirus pandemic. U.S. President Donald Trump recently announced his government would suspend its funding to the World Health Organization. What led to this decision, and why now during this pandemic? Oh, I think that's a um, it's a the billion dollar question uh, that many of us have been have been wondering about and and discussing. Um, I think first and foremost we have to look at the U.S. domestic political context and recall that, of course, this is an election year and that um, the uh, voter approval rate for the president had been going down uh, in part because the response to the uh, epidemic in the U.S. has not been going well. I think there's been quite a lot of mismanagement and um, a lot of uh, mistakes have been made by certainly by the by the federal government and uh i and a number of other commentators i think would would see a search for a scapegoat here and an effort to uh distract from um what has been a, a really uh abysmal um, public health response in in the u.s and and today the u.s has by far the highest number of cases uh in the world and uh, this is not what we would expect to see in one of the wealthiest countries in the world that has one of the best you know, public health agencies, um, some of the, the most sophisticated scientific and, and technological capacities um, uh, worldwide. Um, so I think that's the immediate domestic political context. Um, that said, of course, there are other deeper uh, reasons why um, why questions might be raised. And, and uh, I think some of this has to do with the difficult uh, position that WHO finds itself in, uh, really kind of stuck between two superpowers who are vying for um, global dominance. I mean, uh, not to be over-dramatize the situation, but I think that's, that's really what we're looking at here. Of course, we have long simmering um, US-China tensions that have really uh, you know, come to a head as a result of this pandemic, and um, with uh, you know people in the U.S., uh, both politicians but also the public at large, wanting to understand better, you know what happened in China, and feeling frustrated that there's information uh, perhaps that they they um, uh, weren't able to to get. And I think the um, immediate victim of this frustration has been the WHO, um, but uh, but there are, there are real. Um, tensions and questions about um, you know tensions between the U.S. and China and, and questions about um, the early handling of the outbreak there. And what do you think the immediate and long-term impact of this decision will be? 
Yeah, the immediate impact is highly concerning. Uh, and I think, uh, of course, the most obvious impact is um, will be on, on the budget and therefore WHO's ability to, to function, to continue functioning uh, as an organization. Uh, the U.S. contributes about 16% of the overall budget. Uh, it's the single largest funder, and um, it's unclear at this point exactly how much money will be suspended and through which channels. Um, so we still don't have a very clear picture of um, where precisely budgets are going to need to be cut and when. Um, but it's pretty clear that the any kind of significant block on U.S. funding uh, can potentially cripple the organization. I think the um, the other big challenge uh, in the immediate term is uh, that the leadership of WHO, which frankly should be 100% focused on um, helping the world to get this outbreak under control, they now have to divert uh, precious uh, political and um, intellectual and human resources to addressing this, uh, this budget crunch. And I think it's the last thing the world needs is to have WHO leadership uh, distracted from, from what is already a, an, immense, um, an immense challenge. Uh, so I, I would say those are the immediate, um, the immediate impacts. I think in the medium to longer term, there are, um, uh, I, I mean, there might be some silver, uh, silver lining here. You know, if this uh, decision serves as a wake-up call to uh, all of the member states of WHO, um, a wake-up call that the organization is very uh, vulnerable in the way that it's financed, it's vulnerable to the whims and decisions of one country, um, uh, then I think, you know, if, if it serves as a wake-up call, this could have a, a, a useful long-term effect if governments then step up and say, we have to strengthen um, the way WHO is funded to make it much more reliable um, and uh, sustainable and predictable. Because right now, WHO is funded in an extremely um, illogical way where it relies on uh, member states for only, uh, I mean, member states only provide 20% of its budget in a guaranteed form, meaning from year to year, WHO knows where its money will come from, uh, where one out of uh, um, uh, one out of five dollars will come from, but the rest of it, you know, it really has to um, work very hard to bring in, bring in that money just to keep, uh, to keep functioning. So I do think in terms of the longer term, it is, um, I hope that we will see uh, significant reforms put in place regarding its financing, although hard to predict at, at this moment, you know, where we'll be politically in, um, in, one year's, in one year's time. And what has been the reaction on this decision from world leaders and the public health community? Well, I think it's been quite uh, encouraging and interesting to um, observe what an upsurge of support there has been for WHO. And uh, we've had strong statements of support from uh, heads of state, for example, from, of course, the Secretary General of the UN, um, from philanthropists uh, like Bill Gates, from academic leaders, from intellectuals, and even I think some of the, the fiercest critics of WHO within the public health community really recognize um, how important the organization is and what a, um, what a, um, uh, a crippling decision 
has just been made by the by the Trump administration. So I, I do think that the reaction has largely been supportive. But the key question at this point is um, beyond words: um, Will we see all of these other uh, actors step up and try to fill that um, that budget gap? And and this is a, it's a significant budget gap. We're talking about um, about 450 million U.S. dollars per year on average, and that's been in a normal year. Uh, of course, we are now in an unprecedented, um, an unprecedented uh, emergency where the needs for funding, I think, are, are uh, huge and growing every day, both for WHO and for, for many, many other organizations. And so the question of whether other actors can step up to fill some of the budget gaps um, is, is, I think, really, really critical. And is there a risk that any other country might want to follow the U.S.'s lead on this? What, what we have seen is, is the opposite so far. And already, uh, for example, the government of Finland uh, and the government of Ireland have um, publicly announced that they will increase their uh, contributions, their untied contributions to WHO. And certainly not enough to, uh, to fill this uh, massive gap that, that uh, might end up um, materializing in their budget, but it is a super important political signal. Uh, I have not, um, I have not uh, heard uh, a lot of other political leaders from other countries piling on to say, uh, you know, to criticize WHO or to blame WHO for this, um, uh, this pandemic. I, I do think, uh, on the contrary, what I have heard is uh, many, many uh, voices of appreciation, expressions of support and solidarity, um, and recognition that, uh, you know, WHO is not um, omniscient and WHO is not uh, all powerful. And there are limits to what we can reasonably expect the agency to, um, to be able to do. Uh, given all of its limitations, uh, I, I think the, the, the chorus of uh, opinion, I think, from the, the health and the political community has been uh, WHO is doing, is doing a very good job. Uh, and so I, I don't expect that other countries um, are going to follow the U.S.'s lead. Now, of course, <laughs> I could be wrong about that. And, and um, you know, if other political leaders are also looking for a scapegoat, and, and we know there's a lot of temptation if things are not going well in your own backyard to divert attention elsewhere, you know, certainly um, – uh, we've seen, unfortunately, that sometimes uh, Donald Trump sets a um, a poor example that others do follow. But uh, at least at this point, I, I, I haven't seen a huge risk of that. How has the WHO handled the response to the pandemic so far? And, and what is it able to do well and maybe not so well? Well, I think overall, WHO has been doing uh, a great job. Uh, and... I don't say this lightly. I was involved um, quite centrally in a review of the WHO's performance in the West African Ebola outbreak uh, five years ago, and we were we were very critical uh, in that review, and we identified a number of problems that needed to be addressed. Um, some of those problems have been addressed in the interim, uh, not not every single one. And the funding issue that I raised earlier is, I think, one of the most fundamental. It's not yet been addressed. Um, so we do have to remember that there are a lot of um, institutional or structural weaknesses to the organization that, um, uh, frankly, cannot be blamed on on the organization itself, and and have to be blamed at those who fund and govern the organization, which is of course um, governments, which is member states. Uh, but but given you know the the tools that they do have at their disposal, I think they've been doing a great job. 
uh, I think, for example, that um, Dr. Tedros, the director general, has exhibited leadership on this uh, outbreak from day one. And I was amazed, you know, back in January to see how often he was um, talking to the press, the fact that he is personally uh, in every single press conference, and these are happening, you know, uh, sometimes on a daily basis, um, lately three times a week, but he is, uh, he's been tireless in uh, making sure that the entire organization is really mobilized to help the world um, address this this pandemic. I think he's also provided um, very steady and uh, and very steady leadership, but also very an important um, uh, voice of moral authority. And by that, I mean that he has been calling over and over again for uh, solidarity, for cooperation, for um, equitable treatment of people who are, are vulnerable or who are going to be at greater risk, whether that's individuals within countries um, or that's, you know, entire countries that are, are, you know, not necessarily going to have access to all the resources they need to mount a response. And I do think that he has um, demonstrated quite uh, an impressive set of political um, and diplomatic and leadership skills in this, um, in this crisis. Uh, I also think on the technical side that the um, guidance, uh, the technical guidance that WHO has issued has been um, extremely uh, important, really critical that WHO is able to advise governments on on what to do. And the organization has issued, I think, over 40 technical guidelines in um, in just the last three months on you know, every possible angle you can imagine of how you need to respond to COVID. And that's everything from, you know, uh, social distancing measures, of course, and personal hygiene to, you know, how do you disinfect a hospital or a lab? You know, how do you deal with ships um, and and airplanes carrying cargo into your territory? How do you make sure that the tests that you're running are accurate enough? Which tests, in fact, should you use? I mean, uh, I can go on and on and on, but the, the amount of uh, technical knowledge that the um, staff have been able to synthesize and translate into usable guidance for countries all over the world, I think is, is hugely impressive. Um, and then I think that the last point I would raise in terms of where they have played a really essential role is in coordinating scientific community. And it's not a given that scientists are willing to, to cooperate with each other. Um, in fact, it's quite the opposite. Usually scientists are competing quite fiercely for grant money, uh, you know, to publish in the most prestigious journals, to be the first to make a big discovery. Um, scientists are used to competing. But in a pandemic, in an emergency, uh, we can't afford uh, the loss of time that comes from that kind of competitive dynamic. You have to convince researchers to uh, collaborate, to share information, um, to communicate with each other uh, in real time. And what we have seen, I think, is a real shift in norms uh, in the scientific community. And that is in no small part because WHO has called for that that shift in, in you know, culture among scientists. Um, but we, uh, we have seen, in fact, a really rapid response to um, the, the huge number of scientific questions that remain unanswered about this virus. Uh, we have seen uh, researchers regularly um, sharing preprints, uh, meaning you know, before a journal, peer reviews and publishes an article, they, they share their findings. And of course, this has to be managed very carefully. It's not um, without its, its risks. But uh, overall, the, the willingness of scientists to collaborate is something that I think WHO has played a really central role in um, making happen. 
not only in terms of culture, but also very, very concretely. So there's something called the Solidarity Trial. And it is um, a coordinated uh, uh, trial of a number of um, drug candidates that are considered most promising to actually treat COVID-19. And before WHO launched this trial, you had hundreds of clinical trials being launched in different countries by different uh, universities and hospitals and government labs and companies, um, but it was totally uncoordinated. And there was a big risk, and there continues to be a big risk, that the um, research that comes out of these uh, trials, you know, this sort of hodgepodge of trials happening everywhere, that the knowledge that comes out of that is actually not going to be useful, that either, you know, sample sizes might be too small or findings might be uncertain or the trial design um, doesn't allow for us to combine findings from more than one location or more than one country. It really, really was crying out for international coordination. And so when WHO uh, took on this role, I think there was, it, it was hugely important and the response from countries and from the scientific community has been um, really quite impressive. We have now, uh, last I heard, 100 countries have agreed to coordinate their clinical research on potential drugs uh, through the WHO Solidarity Trial. I think this is, this is unprecedented. I've, I've never heard of something like this. And so this is just another example of why we need some kind of central body uh, playing a coordinating role, even if they have uh, limited tools. I would say, uh, to, to, in, to force coordination. WHO cannot order anyone, neither scientists nor government, um, to, to collaborate or to share information. And so they, they really rely on persuasion, but they have been able to persuade um, governments and researchers to, to do a lot. Not everything, but um, to do a lot. Um, so turning now to the question of what has WHO not been able to do well, I think WHO has struggled to provide guidance on a number of really important uh, policy questions that uh, have not been part of WHO's bread and butter. It's not been really part of WHO's mandate over the last, um, you know, however many, however many decades. Uh, and what I mean is questions about uh, lockdown policies, for example. Um, this is unprecedented that you have governments locking down entire cities, states, countries um, uh, with, with enormous uh, social and economic and political consequences. And so um, WHO has been criticized for um, not being able to tell policymakers, for example, this is how you do a lockdown. This is how you uh, minimize economic impact. Um, this is how you take into account social considerations. You know, for example, the rise of domestic violence that we've seen in a number of places. Um, this is how you prevent your police force from um, abusing citizens who are not uh, not adhering to uh, public health uh, guidance. I mean, these are hugely important questions for the um, for government responses to this pandemic. They are not at all the kinds of questions that WHO is used to dealing with. Um, and they are also not the kinds of questions on which we have a ton of evidence. And I think keeping in mind that WHO, uh, you know, it's one of its key strengths is um, medicine. Of course, you know, it's uh, quite a biomedically uh, focused organization um, and, you know, classic public health, uh, you know, things like contact tracing and isolating cases and doing testing. Um, 
you know, hygiene. These are key issues that WHO knows about. WHO experts, you know, can can write these guidelines in their sleep. But once we start getting into these um, unprecedented questions that start to uh, have implications far beyond the health sector, sector, I think WHO um, has struggled and um, and does struggle. And I think this is one of the reasons why. Um, some of the guidance on, for example, on, on travel restrictions, I have been a little bit puzzled by. Uh, I think some of the guidance on lockdown measures um, certainly could have been strengthened and, and still needs to be strengthened in terms of how do we try to minimize some of the um, uh, unwanted social impacts. Um, but these are, these are not grave errors, I would say. I think it's, um, it's part of trying to what I, what I see is that the um, staff are trying to do their best with limited evidence, um, with uh, limited, you know, countries have limited experience in, in doing this, and we're all trying to learn in real time uh, what works. Everybody is engaged in a massive experiment um, at country level and, and, frankly, at global level right now, uh, trying to figure out how do you, how do you best get this, um, this nightmare under control. And now for the final question, what needs to happen now in the short term and the longer term? Well, I, I do think in the short term, uh, coming back to the funding of WHO and, and where we began uh, this conversation, it is really essential that other funders step up. I, I, I just think that we cannot afford to have WHO um, operating anywhere uh, below 100% capacity uh, in the middle of this unprecedented global emergency. And on the one hand, it should be an easy. Um, it should be an easy task because we're not talking about restructuring the organization. We're talking about money. Um, now, when this crisis is behind us, uh, we will have to look at, uh, you know, WHO's funding. We'll have to look at WHO's authority vis-a-vis its member states. Um, is there a way to try to compel? the sharing of more information than governments have been required to share up to this point? Uh, Can we strengthen accountability mechanisms for governments that don't uh, fully live up to their their legal or other obligations to cooperate with the international community and 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 keep outbreaks of infectious disease under control? I mean, there there's a a pretty long list of of questions we're going to have to wrestle with and um, reckon with when the crisis is behind us. Um, But I do think there is an immediate priority uh, and, and it's one that is eminently doable, and that is that WHO has to be funded. Um, they should not be spending uh, a minute more than they need to chasing after money. Great. Thank you for that. And, and Dr. Moon, thank you for your time and participating in this podcast series. Thanks very much for having me. That was Dr. Suri Moon, co-director of the Graduate Institute's Global Health Center, discussing the United States' decision to halt WHO funding. This podcast series is produced by the Graduate Institute Communications Team. For more information about the Graduate Institute, please visit our website at graduateinstitute.ch. I'm Dan Graham. Thanks for listening.